Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Simbox Present. Let's talk boxing with your hosts, Luke and Ewan. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Simbox Presents. Let's talk boxing. I'm your host, Luke Carney, and as always, I will be joined by my co-host, Mr. Ewan Breeze. And before we get underway with today's episode, I would just like to let our listeners know that you can check us out across social media. And we're on Twitter, at Simbox. We're on Instagram, at Sim underscore Box. And you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is Simbox Boxing. We provide daily updates, breaking news, and debate all things boxing. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Let's Talk Boxing. As always, I'm your host, Luke Carney. And again, as always, I'll be joined by Ewan. How are we doing, Ewan? Good, thank you. Yeah, so uh, really getting used to to the weekly episodes of Let's Talk Boxing now. It's something that I'm really looking forward to. And uh, throughout the evaluating what's going on or any standout moments to discuss on the podcast. And, you know, we've got some really good feedback from our followers, from our listeners. So looking forward to another another entertaining episode with yourself tonight, Ewan. In boxing, despite there being no actual, absolutely. So, I think uh, a, a great point to, to start at being it's May 23rd. Uh, marvelous Marvin Hagler turns 66 today. You know, many, many happy returns to, to Marvelous Marvin Hagler. Yeah, yeah. Um, 33 years since he stepped through a prize fighting ring, uh, but he's still, you know, fresh in our minds for those great fights and those great wars that he had in a boxing ring. All the best to Marvin on his birthday. Absolutely. So you know, I put a tweet out earlier on today, you know, wishing him a happy birthday. And, you know, to kind of keep uh, politically correct, I, I, I put in, in there that arguably he's the greatest middleweight of all time. And I think, you know, he, I don't think there's any argument about it. You know, you, you may be more positioned to, to have a better opinion than me on that, Ewan, but I, I can't argue at 160 pounds that Marvin Hagler is the, the best to ever do it. Yeah, for my money, I think he is the greatest middleweight of all time. Obviously, Sugar Ray Robinson was an amazing middleweight, but his best work was at welterweight. And I'd say the same of Sugar Ray Leonard. Um, I think I think Marvel, Marvellous Marvin, on his night at £160, I don't think there's an athlete that could beat him. I think he would have had the beating of Monzon, Graziano, Zayo, Ketchel. I think he's probably got the beating of a lot of them. He was truly an animal in the ring, and he could set a pace on you that nobody could live with. He was superbly conditioned. And he was able to uh, to outwork and outhustle everyone at that weight class. Absolutely, you know. So if I was to put you on the spot, you and ask you from from the modern era, if you like someone from the past fifteen or twenty years, who would you say would be best equipped to challenge Hagler? Not so much beat him, but give him a good fight. Who would you who would you put in there? I don't think anyone would be able to beat him. Like I say, especially if I've just come with a prediction to call him the best middleweight, but. I think styles-wise, I would have liked to see um, somebody like uh, Chris Eubank Sr. But then maybe if we were looking more modern, um, somebody like Roy Jones Jr. would have given him a good matchup, £160. Um, But Golovkin too would have been an interesting fight because Golovkin had, to a lesser extent, a lot of the attributes that made... Hagler great in terms of a brilliant chin, constant output, great conditioning, 
Um, so yeah, I think I think that in the modern era, probably Golovkin. But if you go back a bit further, I think I like the idea of a Eubanks or a Roy Jones Jr. fight for uh, for Marvin Hagler. Absolutely. I mean, the the idea of a Golovkin Hagler super fight, you know, it really would uh, set the excitement running. Uh, you know, a true epitome of of a super fight. You know, a cross generation uh, super fight. You know, unfortunately, we will never ever see it, and it will be one that could be debated. But yeah, what what a war that would have been. Yeah, of course, of course. Golovkin never makes an easy fight. Like I say, I, I think Hagler wins that one with uh, relative ease. Yeah, so again, with it being May 23rd, uh, this would have been a, di- a date in the diary of, of 2020 for Usyk versus Derek Chisora. This was due to take place this evening, the O2 Arena, pay-per-view on Sky Sports box office, of course. Uh, really intriguing bout. You know, it's one that I was really, really looking forward to. There's many, many heavyweight fights that have took place recently. And, you know, although this one isn't for a world title, uh it's one that really grips the attention of, of boxing fans, you know, whether it be hardcore boxing fans that want to see Usyk in a, in a true heavyweight contest or whether it be the casual market that tend to follow a big Derek Chisora fight. Uh, that was due to take place this evening. Again, obviously, with the current situation, it's been postponed and we're looking for a, for a new date for that fight. But a really, really intriguing fight and one that I'm gutted to have been missing out on. Yeah. My Saturday night is far the worst for not be watching uh, Alexander Usyk make his second fight at heavyweight and his kind of crack at the big leagues at heavyweight. Uh, I was really excited to see if Usyk could be the the X factor of the division, the dark horse to kind of swoop in and, and really make an impact. And as of yet, he's not been allowed that opportunity and it is bad luck, but I think tonight should have been a coming out party for this little Ukrainian. Do we believe that, you know, that the longer the fight goes on, you know, be it delayed by six months or, you know, however long it might take to get this fight in the ring. But do we believe that the longer the fight takes to be made, the older Derek Chisora gets, the more we're leaning towards Usyk as a favourite, which he is anyway. But do we become more of a bigger favourite on the back of Chisora ageing a little bit more towards the fight being rescheduled? Yeah, that is the conventional logic, I'd say. But at the same time, I don't think I've ever given Derek Chisora very much of a chance in this fight. And I think that Although age diminishes it, you know, the percentage I gave him as a chance to win was so small in the first place that it's almost immaterial how old he is when we finally fight. Yeah, I kind of uh, find myself, yeah, agreeing that, you know, Usyk is, this is is, is acid test, if you like, without being one of the big names, one of the champions, this is, you know, a sink or swim moment. If he can't defeat Derek Chisora, if he can't look good in defeating Derek Chisora, which is a really difficult thing to do, you know, I think only Dylan White knocking him out and, David Hayne knocking Derek Chisora out have actually really looked, you know, conclusive. The the, the one-sided beating Tyson Fury put him in as well. Over 10 rounds, that was a really conclusive victory. But aside from that, you know, people like Kubat Pulev or Vitaly Klitschko also, you know, they went the full distance and didn't really look very dominating against Chisora, who on his night can be very difficult to look good against. So I think it was more what we've seen from Usyk in terms of how impressive he could have been. Yeah, he's a big brute lump, isn't he, Derek Chisora? And he, he is a hard he's a hard fighter, but he's he's on he's got nine losses now and he's he's coming towards the end of his career, obviously, thirty six years of age. He's really on the dwindle as far as I'm concerned. And Alexander Rusik is for me one of the best pound for pound fighters in the world. His work at Cruiserweight over people like Murat Basiev, you can't discount that Maris Bradish, you can't you can't say that they are stiffer, that they're not stiffer challenges than Derek Chisora. And the way he handled those makes me think that 
it's uh, it's it's more of a one-sided affair. Yeah, so hopefully we get that fight rescheduled as soon as possible. But sticking on the subjects of Derek Sora and something that I noticed this afternoon, catching up on some of the, the Sky Sports footage over on YouTube and uh, on demand, and there was a, an interview with Derek Chisora and they kind of displayed it to Dylan White during a, an interview with Dylan White. And it, it was Chisora mentioning that he'd, he'd be more than happy to go and spar uh, Povetkin in the build-up to Dylan White and Povetkin's rearranged fight. And I think Sky Sports and the presenters there was trying to stir a bit of bad blood and see if there was any of the old beef remaining between the old rivals. And uh, there was even mention of a, of a third fight, which I don't think they need in that rivalry. You know, as much as it's an entertaining scrap, I think it's done and dusted with a knockout win for Dylan White. But I just thought it was a really interesting footnote to a, to an interview to, to to stir up a bit of a bad blood, as I say. Like we talked about last week, everybody's getting bored in lockdown, wanting a bit of uh, a bit of beef. And a bit of a, a bit of needle someone so they can uh, sell a fight when it comes back. But yeah, no, I think that the end of the last uh, Chisora White fight was as conclusive as it gets, and uh, I don't think there's any fuel to the fire for him to come back on that one in the way there was after the first one. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, finally, to touch on in this week in boxing for Simbox, uh, something that I'm really excited to discuss with you uh, is is the review that you done of uh, Black and White: The Birth of Modern Boxing. Uh, it's a book by Brian Dobbs, author. Uh, a really fascinating read and you had the pleasure of reviewing this work um, and we posted that up on the Simbox website. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the book itself, Ewan, and, and how you found it as a as a read. I really enjoyed the book um, because I am an avid uh, historian of the period. I, I really enjoy um, the period that this book covers. It, it covers sort of, it starts with the, the kind of the murky depths of the bare knuckle era and boxing's flirtations with illegality in the courtroom uh, all the way through to it being the biggest sport in the world with uh, Jack Dempsey versus George Carpentier in the 1920s um, it really it really tied together a lot of the loose ends that was boxing it was it shows how it went from illegal fighting in fields with rope to being like you say mainstream and Jack Dempsey was the biggest sports star in the world him and Babe Ruth were the icons of the 1920s and it, it really does chart that course and in, in immaculate detail. It's it's a dense work. It's a reference book. It's not necessarily, you know, a, a pool, poolside page turner, but it absolutely covers every single detail that you I could like possibly that, uh, want. I like that terminology there, that it's not a, a poolside page turner. That's it's fantastic. It's yeah, it's it's not. You're not gonna you're not gonna take it to switch off. But if you are someone like me who is interested in that period of boxing and wants to know everything there is to know about that, I can't recommend the book enough because it is, it is full of information. And I wrote, uh, I posted on my Twitter to go with the review uh, about the quotations and newspapers, journals, uh, everywhere you could possibly think boxing could be talked about. Brian Dobbs has managed to quote from that place. It is it is meticulously well researched, and the quotations from fighters, trainers, even the kind of the bizarre philanthropists that financed a lot of boxing in the early twentieth century, everybody is quoted from every source. It is it is really an in depth look at this period in boxing. Fantastic. So, am I right in saying that this is yet to be fully published and it's out on the shelves, or is it able to to be purchased at the minute? Do you know where we're at with that? Um. As far as I know, it is still with the publishers. I was given a review copy, um, so it, it is not a published copy as yet. But as far as I'm aware, it is with the publishers and will be available to the general public very soon. 
yeah, fantastic. So when that does become available, uh, we are in touch with the with the publishers. So I'm sure we'll we'll be advertising that on our on our Simbox uh, Twitter feed on, across our social media. So look out for that. Uh, just a, a little side note to that is on the back of Ewan's work. You know, it's been really well received with the the book review. Um, and I don't want to give too much away just yet. You know, if you, you follow me on social media, you'll see that there was a little teaser tweet put out there. But we are going to be in the process of reviewing some more work further down the line, myself and Ewan and, and other members of the Simbox team. So, like I say, I'm not going to say too much. It's, it's something that we're working on, something that's under process, but something that I'm really excited about. And again, another another string to the bow for, for Simbox and, and our team here. Really exciting, uh, really exciting developments. Like I say, I don't know where, I don't know how much I can say, but again, I'm I'm really excited, and it seems to be developing fast. Absolutely. So let's move on to our to our feature of the week. You know, each of these episodes tends to have a feature in place of what would be a fight card preview. You know, when boxing resumes, this section of the podcast will be dedicated to the upcoming fight card. As it is, we have been replacing that segment with a feature. This week, it's let's talk possible rematches. Uh, now, rematch is a a really fundamental part of boxing. You know, from a from a, a perspective of you know great fights, great rivalries. You know, sometimes one fight doesn't settle it all, and we need to go again or a third time. Or in the case of Manny Pacquiao and Marquez, they go at it four times. Yeah, or in the case of Harry Wilson, Sam Langford, they go at it eight times. Absolutely. Um, rematches are integral to boxing because if you think about other sports you know Man United and Liverpool play each other twice a season and then in league in cup games you know uh, the other team sports in you know in rugby league Wigan Warriors and St Helens play each other two three four times a season you know you get your rematches and your rivalries every year boxing it's a two three time thing and you only get to support your guy against their rival on very few occasions and if you get a rematch it's kind of rare second occasion to back your man and and they are really exciting. They are a really unique and exciting part of world sports of boxing rematches. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one only has to delve into the recent history of boxing for no further proof of that. You know, the, the second Wilder Fury fight that's happened this past February, you know, a great way to settle that segment of the rivalry. Of course, we're going to go and move into the trilogy at some point, hopefully at the back end of 2020. And then the... Of recent times, if you like, the, the rematch that stands out for me, of course, is the Frotch Groves rivalry. The, the way it was a controversial ending, if you like, to the, the first fight, and then we got the rematch, the huge rematch at Wembley. You know, we, we touch on it time and time again. And that epitomized how to to finish a, a rivalry, whether it be two fights, three fights, four fights, or eight fights. But yeah, you get that conclusive ending to a, a rivalry at some point. And yeah, the, some of the fights that we're going to be touching on today, just so the listeners keep track of where we're at. Uh, myself and Ewan have picked out four fights that we're going to preview in terms of how the first fight went down, why there might be a second fight, and therefore how we see that second fight playing out. Uh, as always, this is a great source of debate, discussion, controversy, almost, you know, some picks might not be agreed on. And as always, uh, our followers, our listeners can debate all these points with us over on our social media at Simbox across Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and of course Twitter. But yeah, what's your what's your thoughts on the the four fights we've discussed this week, Ewan? I think I think um, it's it's a reflection on the state of British boxing at the moment because we've got we've picked four. We've only got one one 
fighter from foreign soil, but actually he's based with a promoter here and he fights most of his fights in the UK um, or on bills related to the UK promoter. And actually, I think it shows that we've got, you know, budding rivalries ready to go on this island. And if we do, in the lockdown situation, have to just use British fighters, it shows that we do have quality and interest and intrigue and needle in fights with British fighters. I think it, I think that the list we've drawn up together today does actually prove more than anything that British boxing is alive and kicking and well ready to leave this lockdown and have lots of great all British fights. Absolutely. So, you know, like I say, for the listeners that follow us across social media, they would have seen the, the preview tweet that was put out recently, uh, stating the four fights. So, uh, from the top of the list, we, we start with Anthony Joshua versus Dylan White. Then we move on to Robbie Davis Jr. against Lewis Ritson, Anthony Fowler, Scott Fitzgerald, and Dylan White, Joseph Parker. Four great fights in their own right, and four fights that have left enough bad blood, enough desire, enough public demand, enough public outcry for there to be a rematch in each case. So like I say, myself and Ewan, we're going to dissect each fight in terms of the, the first fight, how that fight played out, why there's enough demand for a rematch and how that rematch would start all play out. So first off, uh, we'll go back to 2015, the O2 Arena, sold out O2 Arena, and it was a British heavyweight title fight. Uh, in the home corner, if you like, the, the home promoter fighter was a Mr. Anthony Joshua. You know, before all the world titles, uh, before the, the big Wembley stage, he was a 14-fight novice, if you like, you know, on the back of the the Olympics, he, he'd went 14-0, and knocked out all 14 opponents. And in the, the away corner this night was a, a Dylan White, a domestic rival of Anthony Joshua that seemed to seemed to bring out a different side to Anthony Joshua in the build-up. And, you know, they had like a street rivalry, if you like, away from boxing. And this, was a, this fight was for the British heavyweight title. And I can remember being really excited around the build-up for this fight. What's your memories of the build-up to Joshua White 1, Ewan? It was um, it was different because Anthony Joshua was the golden boy. He was he was a Britain's Olympic 2012 hero. You know he was clean cut, wear suit wearing, um, you know all smiles, all singing, all dancing, matchroom PR uh, golden boy. And then suddenly you get Dylan White, who is the polar opposite of that. He says exactly what he's thinking whenever he thinks it. He has absolutely no regard for the kind of boxing establishment. He does what he wants. And then you suddenly saw that when that AJ was confronted with that guy, the streak came out of AJ again and we saw who who he was before uh, he found boxing and we saw that kind of the kid who is actually a lot more like Dylan White than, you know, his promoters in the back of the sky would have you believe. Um, and yeah, I thought it, the needle that it created really showed uh, a kind of a live rivalry and that different side to both of them that were real, you know, they were ready for a dogfight. It wasn't about uh, Anthony Joshua knocking over another tin can. It was, it was, it was on. Absolutely, you know. I think the first time I really, really got excited about this rivalry. You know, I know there was murmurs beforehand and whatnot, but in the build-up to Joshua's previous fight to this, he, he defeated uh, Scottish heavyweight Gary Cornish brutally, knocked him out. I think it was in the first round. But at the press conference for that fight with Gary Cornish. Him and Dylan White had a lot of verbals at the final press conference and Gary Cornish and the undercard fighters were all sat there and they were just playing second fiddle to this heated argument that was going from one end of the table through Eddie Eddie Hearn and he could try quieting down and he 
you know, his words weren't having any effect. And Dylan White was at the other end of the table and he was verbally jousting with Anthony Joshua. And it was at that point where I thought this fight needs to happen. There's genuine bad blood and this is a real, real fight. And so it proved in the ring. Um, it wasn't quite the uh, the fight that you'd expect a 15-fight novice pro to have. Uh, it was it showed straight away signs of being the dog fight that they all talked about. Absolutely, yeah. So if we move into the fight uh, in the first round, it kind of it was tentative for for about fifteen twenty seconds, and it just ignited. You know, the bad blood came out, the the game plans, the the, the Olympic, you know, upright style of Joshua went out the window, and it became a brawl. And you know, he, he tagged Dylan White often and, and heavy in that first round. And, you know, there was a couple of stages where I thought this has been overhyped and this is 15 and 0, 15 knockouts early. But, you know, Dylan White, towards the end of that first round, you know, he revitalised himself. And then there was the whole palaver at the end of the first round where they both landed shots after the bell. The, the entourages of, of both men entered the ring. And at that point, I thought Dylan White had bottled it, if you like. I thought he didn't want any of this and, He's seen a, a disqualification as an easy way out. You know, I was very wrong in that assessment, but that was a split second assessment that I made. Uh, that I thought he'd, he took heavy shots in the first round. He thought that's not for me. You know, rather than getting knocked out, I'm going to get myself disqualified. Live to fight another day. And then, like I said, the two entourages entered the ring, and yeah, it was a uh, it was entertaining as a fan. I can remember that anyway. He's that sort of guy, isn't he, Dylan? He has absolutely no regard for, like I said, like like I just said, the boxing establishment. You know what I mean? He's, you can yep. he, the referee and everything doesn't matter. Dylan White is only focused on the man in front of him, and he's focused on knocking that man out. He has absolutely no regard, and especially then, he's he's more he's more refined now because he's had to be. But at that point, he's just he's a street brawler. Do you know what I mean? He's he's a hard hard man, absolutely. and he just wants to get after you. And he went after him. At the end of the round, he didn't care that somebody had rung a bell. He was he was in a fight. Absolutely. So moving into that second round, I think at that point Joshua, as always at that point in his career, thought it was just a matter of time. You know, he like I say, he'd, he'd tagged White, he'd hurt White, he'd seen that he'd hurt him. But then from nowhere, Dylan White lands this left hook, this this short, sharp, powerful left hook that lands perfectly on the chin of Joshua, and it kind of stuns him for a for just a split second, and then he staggers forward, and I think it was Malinaje, probably Malinaje on commentary, you know, he was like, he's hurt him, he's hurt him, and Dylan White noticed, and he, he couldn't hide the emotion in his face that he thought, I've got him. And for, you know, all of 15, 20 seconds, that was the most vulnerable we'd seen, Anthony Joshua, up until that point in his career. I still think it's the hardest, well, the most danger Anthony Joshua's been in, apart from the one time he got stopped. Povetkin wobbled him, Takam got him with a headbutt, but actually, nobody's landed a big clean shot in the same way that Dylan White landed a big clean shot. And it was, it was, he, he was covering up, he was, you know, it, like you say, Joshua was getting a bit cocky, it was a bit, this is just a matter of time. And then suddenly, whack, you know, Dylan White throws what is now his trademark punch. It's that left hook, it's that big whipping left hook, it's the same thing he stopped Chisora with, it's the same thing he dropped Joseph Parker with, I mean, I'm sure we'll come on to that later, but Lucas Brown, he's also uh, he's also brutally stopped with this, and he just he just kind of tucks up and throws it. And it's a big, big square. His fist is side on when he throws it, and it is a really devastating weapon. And he clipped Joshua very, very hard with it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, given that 
the frailties that Joshua's gone on to show in certain fights in terms of getting tagged and getting tagged with, you know, silly shots, if you like, or, or the other end of the spectrum, really, really heavy shots like he took against Andrew Ruiz. I think the fact that he survived this shot from Dylan White and, you know, recovered and went on to get the victory is is quite overlooked in terms of people that like to question his his defences, if you like. You know, I know it was early on in his career and he went on to fight a higher calibre of opponent. But yeah, I think it's overlooked that he, he survived that shot because it would have put a lot of a lot of men over. You only have to look at the, the Lucas Brown knockout, as you say. Such a, a brutal knockout from Dylan White. And Anthony Joshua did take that shot. And it, at the time, he was a 14-fight novice. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite overlooked. It's overlooked by me when I was talking before because actually the Vladimir Klitschko fight and it always pops out of my head despite being, I personally believe, a genuine heavyweight classic. And Joshua's proved in that fight as well that he can get up. And like you say, I, I can only corroborate that actually Anthony Joshua has better powers of punch recovery than the Ruiz fight would have us believe. Because like you say in this fight, but also against Klitschko, he, he managed to recover and you know deal with those punches. But yeah, the the comeback from Anthony Joshua in this Dylan White fight that we're talking about is is absolutely admirable as we move through the rounds. Yeah, most definitely. So then moving into rounds three, four, five, and six, it, it kind of you know naturally had to boil down that you know they was loading up on heavy shots throughout the early rounds and it slowly petered off and Joshua began to walk Dylan White down. Dylan White, as we would later learn, injured his left shoulder. I think it was his something around his left shoulder which then troubled him trying to throw that punch again. And it just became an almost cat and mouse situation. You know, Dylan White was offering some resistance. He was trying to fire back. He was clearly troubled. But Joshua was just walking him down. He was feeding him his jab all night long. And yeah, moving into the seventh round, which turned out to be the final round. It it was the furthest Joshua had been up until that point in his career. Uh, and we was, we was treated to a... What was it? A trademark anti Joshua knockout. It was a a brutal knockout as it was. It left Dylan White sprawled across the bottom ropes, and the ref had to pull out his gum shield. And Joshua wheeled away in celebrations of of not only defeating a bit of rival in Dylan White and exacting revenge for the defeat in the amateurs against Dylan White, but also winning the British title and defending his Commonwealth title. Again, it. It is a it is a kind of a vindication moment and a, a kind of a stepping stone against a tough British title challenger and everyone wants that Lord Lonsdale belt, but something that can't be stepped over and is the shape that White was in for that fight. So, like you say, Dylan White's trailed off very fast after the kind of fifth round, but he didn't. He wasn't in any sort of shape to continue. He was really he wasn't the shape. He wasn't in the shape that we've seen him for fights like the Lucas Brown fight or the Oscar Rivas fight, take from that what you will. But um, Dylan White in that fight, he was he was fleshy around the middle. He was, you know, he was enjoying the heavyweight diet. He wasn't looking after himself. And like you say, I think that the knockout came because he wasn't didn't have enough in the tank to defend himself properly. And he was really starting to gas at that point. Uh, and I think that that will be an interesting factor as we talk about the rematch. Yeah, most definitely. So coming off the back of this fight... Uh, at that point, I did not think that Anthony Joshua was ready for a world title fight. You know, although the, the world champions at that era, uh, at that time, wasn't as strong as what they are now, or as strong as what they were previously. Given that you know the the fractured titles on the back of uh, Tyson Fury being stripped of the belts after his epic victory over Vladimir Klitschko, of course, out in Germany, and they they was all fractured and. 
There was the WBC situation with Deontay Wilder and Bermain Stavern. So, yeah, as it, as it works out, the, the next fight on the calendar for, for Anthony Joshua was, of course, the challenge of Charles Martin. He went on and won the world title, and from that point, it was a totally different ballgame. Uh, as for Dylan White, he went to a... To surgery, he got he got mended. He got himself into a bit of better shape. He had a couple of comeback fights. He of course took on Dave Allen in Leeds. Took him uh, took him ten rounds and and won on points. Then he went on to win the British title himself uh, against uh, Ian Livingston, uh, which was again another tough full distance fight. And then went into the Chisora fight. Uh, so yeah, given the way Dylan White entered the Anthony Joshua fight and the injuries, it would have been very easy for him to have, you know, faded away, not took boxing serious. You know, he would have took a, a decent enough payday in that first fight. But he didn't. He redesigned himself, rediscovered himself and came back as a fully-fledged heavyweight boxer. You know, he was a good prospect at that point. He, he went and rebuilt himself, as I say. Uh, Joshua stepped up a level but that bad blood always remained, and I think the fact that it sold well, it was believable, it was genuine. That demand for a rematch has always been there, and, and given the trajectory Dylan White has progressed at, he's now in a position where he can call for the rematch, and it's been it's been there or thereabouts for maybe the past eighteen months to two years, maybe. It's really hard because after that, he chose to pursue the WBC route. We're beating Robert Hellanius for the uh, vacant silver title. And again, I, I don't want to give that, that silver title too much value. But what it is for is for getting him a ranking with the WBC. And once he'd got that ranking, he defended it and he won all sorts of other awful, unnameable WBC trinkets trying to go down that route. And so now he is their interim champion. Again, take from that what you will. But... He is, he's gone firmly down the route of the only belt that Anthony Joshua doesn't have. And I'm not going to accuse Eddie Hearn of a mismanagement, but I think that the rematch is the rematch makes a lot more sense than the position. The rematch, rematch makes a lot more sense as a fight than it does with the governing bodies because I think Eddie Hearn has pushed Dylan White away from Anthony Joshua because he, he's realised that he's got good heavyweights who can win titles and make money. So he's pushed him away from Anthony Joshua because the WBC is obviously the only belt that Anthony Joshua doesn't hold. And so, again, boxing politics-wise, he's far away from Joshua. But actually, as a fan's point of view, it makes sense because he's a number one contender and Anthony Joshua has all these belts. He's a, he's a world champion. And so I think it is it is a, a kind of a more complicated situation in terms of the way they've gone and the different paths they've gone down uh, because they, they share a promoter. But actually, I think it's... Um, as a fight fan, I don't really care about the governing bodies and whatever ridiculous alphabet title Dylan White holds. Actually, the fight does almost make sense if we can't get the unification belt. Yes, absolutely. You know, very much inclined to agree. And I think my my outlook on it, you know, very rough outlook, is that I see two ways of looking at this from Eddie O'Hen's perspective. One, I think Dylan White has progressed to a level that far exceeded early expectations. Now he at times in the past, you know, people may or may not agree that he should have received the WBC heavyweight title shot at some point. Now, had he won that belt, it would have been an in-house fight with Anthony Joshua for an undisputed champion, which is dollar signs in the eyes of Eddie Hearn. And should he have lost to Deontay Wilder back when Deontay Wilder had that WBC title, then he's 
you know, not to be too disrespectful, he was cannon fodder and it could kind of help Eddie Hearn gauge where Andy Joshua would be in that kind of fight, if that makes sense. So then when the WBC situation, which I don't want to go into, it's a murky situation at best, has played out the way it has. Dylan White has not received the WBC title shot. When he comes back into the fold to be considered for an anti-Joshua opponent, I think his value has risen more than what anti-Joshua respects him for, if that makes sense. So anti-Joshua still kind of looks down on Dylan White, given the bad blood, the fact that he's beaten before now. Whereas Dylan White is, in his own right, a genuine world title contender, you know, a world-level opponent that should be respected in that manner. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I think it's a good point. I um, Again, I think the technical merits, I think as we move away from the business, because people, you know, especially I get bored with the business and I'm, I'm awful, I'm awful, I'm Absolutely. awful for it. But we are, we are at the end of the day just fight fans. And I think if we look at the fight technically, it's such a better fight now than it was then. They were both novices. You know, obviously, uh, they were both what? Well, Joshua was what? What did you say? I can't remember. But Dylan was 16 and 0. And 16 and 0 and 14. 14 and 0. So they're such novices. They're not seasoned pros in the way they are now. And they've both got so much, so many more elements to their game, I think, as professionals now and as seasoned boxers. You know, back in the day, a guy would have 50, 60 fights before he fought for a world title. Having 14 and 16 is absolutely insane. And it is a very modern phenomenon. And I think they are only just now growing into themselves as professionals. And I think it's a far more interesting technical standpoint from a technical standpoint now than it ever was. How do you see the, that fight matching up now as to say the rematch at the end of this lockdown situation? How do you see that fight going technically? As a technical opinion on the fight, you know, taking away personal like favoritism to one or the other fighters because I, I really am a big fan of both both boxes. Uh, I see it being a lot more tentative. I believe that Dylan White will always have in the back of the mind the way he was took out by Anthony Joshua. You know that would never leave him. Uh, that, but then Anthony Joshua's shown frailties in the Ruiz fight, especially to a left hook, which is Dylan White's honey shot. Uh, you know, the, the whole idea behind this podcast is that, you know, we're always going to put our neck on the lines and go with our opinions. I just think Andy Joshua as a professional has got Dylan White's number. Be it a late stoppage between nine and 12 rounds or a clear unanimous decision. I just think Andy Joshua in the pro ranks has Dylan White's number. So for me, in in a rematch, in a trilogy, Andy Joshua would always be a, a victor. How about yourself? I think it, I agree in the sense that it's Anthony Joshua's fight to lose. Anthony Joshua's shown that he can box and he can get on his bike and he can give you a jab and, jab and grab, jab and move Klitschko-style performance, which is what he did in Saudi Arabia last time out. But if he allows Dylan White to get into his brain, which Dylan White will surely try and do, he'll call him all the same names, he'll, he'll tell him that he's not a man, he doesn't want to fight. And if he can get into his head and draw him into a scrap, I think Dylan, Dylan White can absolutely knock him out. I think that if you get drawn to a scrap with Dylan White, especially if you've, as Joshua has, been susceptible to that left hook, nobody at heavyweight in, at the moment has a bigger left hook than Dylan White. And if Anthony Joshua allows those psychological gains to, to play with him, to play on him, and he gets drawn into, you know, as Angelo Dundee would always say, hook him with a hooker, uh, he'll, get, he'll get chinned. But again, I think it's his fight to lose because if he uses that game plan, that Klitschko game plan, I think he's got the beating of Dylan White, absolutely. Yeah, I can absolutely echo those thoughts. So, yeah, that's that's the first of four fights down. 
uh, we move over to yourself. Uh, which fight have you decided to go with first of the two that you'll be going in depth with? Yeah, we'll go to the uh, the uh, Ritson versus Robbie Davis Jr. fight. So this occurred in uh, in Newcastle uh, fairly recently, and um, I thought it was an absolute fantastic fight. Obviously, there's Josh Taylor at the top of the tree in terms of uh, in terms of British light welterweight, but these two are right underneath him, and they obviously Ritson was coming up from lightweight. Uh, Robbie Davis Jr. was the British and European champion, and they had a kind of a grudge match. That there was some beef between them. Obviously, neither of them there was no love lost, as you'd say. Um, but they had a great fight up in Newcastle, and I think that there's absolutely a case for this one more than probably any other uh, to make this rematch. And it was a very close fought fight. But um, but what did you think about it, Luke? Yeah, so originally, you know, given that Lewis Ritson was such a, a wrecking ball at 135, you know, he cleaned up domestically. I think he won the belt outright in, in record fashion. Um, and then once he moved up to £140 after the Patera loss, he was quite underwhelming. You know, he was making hard work of people he was meant to look good against. You know, Robbie Davis obviously had only lost once and he'd come back and gain revenge over the only person that had defeated him. But I didn't see this fight coming. It the, the bad blood, the the animosity really took me by surprise. But it had me hooked. And I was really looking forward to to getting this fight made. And when it was put on in, in Newcastle, I was I was shocked, you know, because I thought Robbie Davis was the A side slightly given, you know, he was holding the titles and he was more established at the weight class. But yeah, it was made in Newcastle and we was what a spectacle it was. Yeah, Lewis Ritson is a massive name up there, though, and I understand that Robbie Davis Jr. at that weight is a you know a more seasoned pro when it was made. But again, you can see why Ritson it you know became the A side in that fight because he has such drawing power in the northeast. Um, but yeah, as we got into the fight, it was it was I thought it was no contest. I'd seen what Patera had done to him at, at lightweight. I thought Robbie Davis Jr. is a better boxer than Patera, and I thought it was a done deal. But the emotion and the needle, like you say, it, it really, really bled into the fight and they ended up having a real straightener, you know, something that belonged as much on, you know, if it was if it was out on the street on a Saturday night, you'd stop and watch it. They really, really went for it and neither took a backward step. Yeah, absolutely. So just before we get into the fight, like you say, the, the word you mentioned there it really, really epitomises what it was. It was a straightener, given, you know, the, the back in August, I think it was, on the undercard, of a next-gen show in Liverpool. There was that altercation backstage where there was a back-and-forth after each of their fights, and that's where, obviously, the, the seed was planted. And it did. It just felt like it was a, a straightener. There was bad blood. There was two guys looking to progress. One of them could go on, and the other one would rebuild. And there was no other route for him to take at that point. Like you say, Josh Taylor was top of the tree in terms of British 140-pounders, but there was a void there to be next in line. And... Another thing I want to touch on, I thought this was a great card in Newcastle. You know, we had the Ted Cheeseman and Scott Fitzgerald fight on the undercard. Um, you know, more on Scott Fitzgerald later on, but that was a great fight, you know, a really intriguing fight and a great appetizer for a main event that, you know, it, it, you often hear, you know, like the, like the touch paper and, you know, off we go. But that's exactly what this was. It was just kind of wind them up, chuck them in the ring, and there was like two Duracell bunnies that just didn't stop. Yeah, I think that Ritson's ability to go the full 12 was enhanced by him not having to cut the weight. Against 
uh, Patera especially at 135, he looked gassed towards the end. He looked tired. He looked like he wasn't really ready to be there. But that kind of weight, even though he looked small in the ring, uh, he was able to continue his output all the way through. And I think that extra £5 really helped him. But at the same time, I was I was actually underwhelmed by Robbie Davis Jr. because the occasion got to him. Obviously, you know, Melt and Maggot are now absolutely uh, immortalised in uh, the matchroom uh, <laughs> highlight reel of hype for this rematch if it were to occur. But um, I think that that altercation coupled with the crowd really, really got to Robbie Davis Jr. And he was like, he was chomping on his mouth guard, just wanting to hurt Lewis Ritson. And I think that ultimately that cost him a lot in that fight is that he was trying, he was going for the knockout. He was going for the dog fight. And in that clash of styles, Ritson always lives in a dog fight. And yes, absolutely. I think it's And I think, sorry, you go on. Sorry. So I I was just like you say, I think with a dog fight, I think that Ritson set that tone early and it really knocked Robbie Davis out of his rhythm. You know, any kind of game plan where he might've had to, to box around the puncher, if you like, and you know, like you say, I think he was the the classier boxer on paper, and I just think he was knocked out of that with the emotion, with the crowd, and with the the intensity that Lewis Ritson started at. I think it completely shook him, and it completely knocked him out of his expectations of what that fight was going to play out. At. You know, I think it, it was very close with the bookmakers. It was very close amongst boxing fans. And one of the things that I really, really enjoyed about the fight was the fact that it started off at 100 miles an hour and it never once took a backward step. And then in the 12th round, he was going just as hard as he was in the first round. And I, I just wanted it to go on. I wanted it to be an old-fashioned 15-rounder. Let's get three more rounds of action. As it was, you know, we were, we were stuck to the 12 rounds and very, very close on the scorecards. I'm not sure how you scored it yourself, Ewan. You can you can let us know. But for me, I, I did believe Ritson done enough and I was relieved when... He was given the decision. How did you see it on the cards? I scored it a draw. Um, I had, I understand um, scoring it to Ritson by one round or two rounds. It, there was a lot of close rounds in there. And I'm not saying if you scored it for Ritson, you're wrong. But personally, I watched it without the sound on the night. And um, I, I was I, I, there was other people around me that didn't want to watch the boxing. So I, I watched it without sound. And uh, I scored it a draw. And I think, again, I'm not trying to say that the crowd played the judges. There's been more egregious examples of that. But I think if that was in Liverpool and Robbie Davis had nicked it by a round, it would have had the same reaction as, oh, yeah, that could have gone either way. Um, but again, I, I have no I have no problems with Ritson as a winner. He, he fought very well. He fought far better than I anticipated he would fight. Um, but yeah, I think that that kind of how close it was having Ritson win by a round or two rounds. I think there's absolutely an appetite for a rematch. But as we talk about the rematch, I think that the position that these guys find themselves in uh, in world boxing at the moment is is the catalyst for the rematch. And why I think out of the four that we've picked, it's the most likely to happen and happen soon is because actually both of these guys are they're, they're, they've surpassed British level. They're above the British level now. You know, they've both won a British title, obviously one off the other, but they're both at that level. But actually, would you really like to throw either of them in with Josh Taylor or Jose Ramirez? I think that it's not going to happen. No, exactly. And that they've both got mandatory situations and then a unification to come. So you're barred out of a world title shot for a long time. But actually, the only guy that's there around British level, but above British level, the same as you, is the other guy. For for Ritson, that's Robbie Davis. And for Robbie Davis, that's Ritson. I don't think that 
they have far to go outside of each other. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the the points you make about the fact it was such a close fight that it was scored to the hometown fighter in, in Ritson, given that it was a close fight. And the, the, like you said, they mentioned that the situation with the world champions at 140 pounds. Why not redo this again in Liverpool? And then if, you know, we, we give the advantages back to Robbie Davis Jr. in terms of home location and, you know, having his, his crowd there as the majority. And then if he does win that, go on to a trilogy, you know, and, and have a solid domestic rivalry. And at that point, imagine if we get 18 months down the line and these guys have, have fought three times and one of them emerges a 2-1 victor. At that point, we wouldn't be saying that they're not ready for a world title shot because they'd be more than ready. They'd be stronger, they'd be longer in the tooth, they'd be more experienced. And I think they'd be primed for a world title shot at that point. And if, if it doesn't need a trilogy, if Ritson goes to Liverpool, makes it 2-0, again, the, 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 what he'd gain in experience and exposure from that fight would ready him for a world title shot more than what he is at this point. So I think there's so much more to gain than there is to lose for both men. Even though one of them would be a loser in the fight, I think they'd be gaining so much before a world title shot that it makes so much sense. And it's so fresh in their memory with boxing fans. That it was such a great fight. There's nowhere else for him really to go. Let's get him back in there and let's do it again. You know, it could happen behind closed doors if needed. And then they could go to Liverpool for the trilogy. You know, there's, there's so many possibilities. There's so many reasons why to do it. And there's not so many reasons why not. It's a great fight. Yeah, and the appetite will be there for it because of how good it was the first time, and I think that I think that this is definitely the most likely to happen in the close, in the maybe in the not too distant future. Absolutely. So you know, just before we move on, I just want to mention here to any listeners also, so they don't get it confused. We have selected four fights. It's not, you know, we 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 don't just narrow it down to these four fights and ignore everything else. It's just that we couldn't really cover every. Every possible rematch. There's a lot of other great fights out there. You know, one that springs to mind, of course, is the Regis Progre and Josh Taylor fight. What a great fight that was, and I'd love to see that again. But given other options out there for Josh Taylor and, you know, will Progre go up in weight or whatnot, that that fight is a little bit further off than some of the fights that we're discussing at the minute, given that we have tried selecting four fights that are reasonably, can be reasonably expected to take place soon. So moving on to, to my next fight. Again, you know, there's, there's out-of-the-ring issues for some of the fighters that might, you know, scupper some of these plans. But the next fight that we'll get on to uh, is Anthony Fowler and Scott Fitzgerald, another brilliant, brilliant domestic rivalry and a brilliant domestic dust-up. Plenty of blood, bad blood. You know, it's a term that we're using a lot with the free fights already and it's, it's, it's perfect to describe each and every one of the fights that we're talking about. But we're going back to March of 2019, the original fight, and... This took place in Liverpool, the hometown of Anthony Fowler, Scott Fitzgerald from up the road in Preston. He took a, a thousand fans with him to, to Liverpool. Now, there really was bad blood here. And it, this, again, this was something that was almost lying dormant from their, their time on the Team GB setup for the Commonwealth Games and whatnot. They seemed to be a bit of a, a rivalry covering many a years. Uh, first off, Ewan, like, what's your memories of the build up to Anthony Fowler, Scott Fitzgerald's fight? I was there all week. Uh, I lived in Liverpool at the time and I was. I was at- uh, the press conference, the weigh-in, and then the fight, and it was it was a really, really uh, there was that animosity was there. It was palpable. It was palpable, and I remember my abiding memory of it is Scott Fitzgerald missing weight and then having an hour to make the weight, and he was running round the um, the Cunard building in Liverpool inside the hall wearing a bin bag, going, 
go on, Anthony, come on, Anthony, come on, Anthony. And he was just, he, he, he was like a man possessed. And we talk about the madman. I, I, I knew very little about Scott Fitzgerald before this fight. I, I knew, I'd seen him knock over a couple of tin cans, but nothing spectacular. And I saw him that day and I thought, he's genuinely mad. He was running around after that way, literally wearing a bin bag. And I was just going, what is going on? I was, I was absolutely suddenly mesmerised by something that I thought was, would be a fairly routine, you know, a kind of a live-ish opponent for that stage of Fowler's career. But I thought, oh, God, the guy's mental. There's absolutely no chance. And then what a fight it turned out to be. It was, it was a crazy, uh, crazy week in Liverpool. Absolutely. You know, funny enough, you mentioned there being at the press conference, the weigh-in and, and everything else. The initial announcement press conference was the first ever press conference that I attended as Simbox back in the days when I was the only member of the team here. And uh, it, it was the first time that I interviewed anybody. You know, I spoke to Joe Hughes at the time. He was, funny enough, he was fighting Robbie Davis Jr. for the European light welterweight title. I spoke to Joe Gallagher and a couple of others. And uh, yeah, that was the first one that I ever attended. So I was really intrigued by this this fight. And I was the same as you, you know, not to sound too disrespectful to Scott Fitzgerald, he's a great fighter, but Andy Fowler was the golden boy, if you like. He was the, the hometown fighter. He was expected to win. He was... There's a lot of hype around him working with Dave Caldwell. Uh, but the, the thing that sticks out for me in terms of the build-up, I'm not sure how long before the weigh-in it was, but there was the, the social media snippet which went viral of Scott Fitzgerald ripping his shirt off and saying to the camera, do you think I'm struggling to make weight, Tony? I'm not. You're in big, big trouble. And then he says, look at my back. I'm a gorilla. And then he proceeds to fail to make weight, <laughs> which I thought was absolutely superb. He, he gloated on social media that he's, he's in fantastic shape, which he was, but he was overweight ever so slightly. And then to, to kind of gloat the way he did and then fail to make weight. And as we went to find out that he, he, he was running around in a bin bag, as you say, uh, highly amusing stuff, but it just all added to the, the sense of this was a, a gritty fight, a, a straightener. Again, another term that I'm going to use, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, and when they got in there, you know, Fowler started a huge favourite, you know, eight to one on he was with the bookmakers and Scott Fitzgerald was the five to one outsider, you know, and hindsight's a wonderful thing. Imagine lumping on Scott Fitzgerald at five to one as a live underdog. Unbelievable. And the bad blood was there throughout, you know, there was the impromptu gloves are off with Sky Sports. You know, usually this is filmed in the studio weeks and months before the fight. This was done on fight week, I think. You just pulled up a couple of chairs and give them a microphone and, you know, it was, it was, Filled with expositives and they, they, you know they were swearing and you know I think most of the Sky Sports broadcast was just beeped out. But yeah, such was the the interest, the intrigue, in the bad blood that was there, and that people wanted to see this settled one way or another. You know, it was a raw, passionate grudge match and a, a domestic grudge match at that, which always garners huge attention. And in contrast to the uh, the Ritz and Robbie Davis Jr., the way the fight actually started, it wasn't necessarily the kind of back-and-forth brutality that Scott Fitzgerald in the build-up would have you believe. They were both actually boxing quite well, especially Fitzgerald, who came out on the balls of his feet and he really started to show that he was a mover. You know, he, all week he was, I'll knock you out, I'll knock you out, I'll stand and bang with you. And actually, he came out and he was, he was twinkle-toes, he was moving around, he was sticking and moving. And I thought it was really impressive as he came out, the bell, came out for the first bell. He, he'd never boxed like that before against journeymen. He'd, he'd always kind of just dug his heels in and, and swung for them. But this fight, he just suddenly came with this, this beautiful boxing game. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that the fundamentals of Fowler, you know, they shone through in the first two, two rounds, two and a half rounds maybe, but towards the back end of the, the third round and onwards, 
like you say, Fitzgerald was so composed and Fowler was loading up on every shot. He was looking to take his head off at every opportunity and he was going heavy to the body. And Fitzgerald was always ending the barrage from Fowler with the smarter, slicker shots. It was it was the more eye-catching work. And as the fight progressed, you know, Fitzgerald just got stronger, he got more fluid, and Fowler was loading up too much and he was clearly gassing. Yes, Tank wasn't there. I, I did score a lot of the first of the early rounds to, uh, to Fowler. Like we talked about yep. his, his body shot. He, he was landing solid, solid body shots. And obviously Fitzgerald, they weren't affecting him, but you have to score a lot of those rounds to Fowler. Um, and then obviously as we go into the ninth round, you have to score that one for Fowler because he nearly got he nearly, uh, he nearly stopped the fight. Yeah, absolutely. The ninth round was, was huge. And leading up to this, this is something I wanted to touch on. And it was only watching the fight back recently that I noticed. You can go back and watch the fight. And at near enough, the end of uh, the, the minute in between rounds, Fitzgerald's off his still first. He's, he's, he's straight back to the centre ring. Um, and be it, you know, is it is it Fowler being slightly hesitant? Is it Dave Caldwell trying to feed him too much information? You know, that's open to debate. But I think it was really eye-catching that Fitzgerald was the first one off every time. And, you know, it, there was so much mentally going on in the ring as well as physically, you know, because of the will to win of both men, the fact that they didn't want to face the embarrassment of, of losing to the man, given, you know, the, the, the pre-fight antics. But moving into that ninth round, and you just think Fitzgerald has to see out the final two. It was close, but Fitzgerald was ahead. And then, oh my God, what a ninth round. You know, as a, as a, as a boxing fan, you just kind of, watch it back on YouTube and you, you rewind and watch it again and rewind and watch it again. It was it was an unbelievable nag round. Obviously, the 10th round was great as well. But I thought, watching it back, or watching it originally, sorry, I, that Fowler had got him. I thought, this was it. Fitzgerald is going out in his shield. He's, he's done well, but the class is showing through of Fowler and that it was he was going to take him out. And he absolutely threw the kitchen sink at him. He emptied the tank. He, he hit him with everything. And Fitzgerald, unbelievably, ends the round on the front foot. He, he he ends the ninth round. He has the better of the last 60 seconds. And Fowler is clearly gassed from whatever he had left, whatever little amount of reserve he had left in that ninth round. Once he hurt Fitzgerald with the uppercut and the left, he absolutely threw everything at him and it, it just didn't get him out of there and... At that point, I thought the right was on the wall, given that Fitzgerald recovered so quickly and finished on the front foot. Again, not to not to kind of go too heavy on the scoring, but I think that had Fowler put Fitzgerald down in that in that ninth round, and then the thing happened in the tenth, they might have scored it a draw. I think it was a very close fight, and if Fowler had managed to pull out ten a, it might have evened the scores up. Um, I'm not sure what I scored it on the night, but. Um, it was close. It was. It's closer than people remember. And boxing Twitter will probably have a go at me for this, but it was far closer. Than everyone thinks. Everyone loves to remember that Fitzgerald gave him a hiding. But outside of the tenth round, it didn't. It was a really competitive fight. And like I say, as we move into that tenth round, that is when Fitzgerald though, took over. Fowler was. He was well conditioned for an amateur for you know threes and sixes, but he wasn't twelve. He wasn't ten round fit, and Fitzgerald was. And uh, he pulled it out of the bag and obviously dropped Fowler in that tenth round. And, that, for me, is what clinched the decision on the points. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was a big knockdown. There was a pair of uh, left hooks, I think it was, uh, that, that kind of stunned Fowler, the second of which put him down. And, you know, it was a heavy knockdown, but he, re- he recovered his senses 
quickly. You could see that he was gutted he'd been put down. He knew the ramifications of a 10-8 round. He he was in co- eye contact with Dave Caldwell. Dave Caldwell was telling him to calm down, to listen to the count and whatever else. Uh, but just touching on what you mentioned there with the in terms of the scoring, it, it was a close fight. It was a closely contested fight. But for me, I had uh, Fowler winning the first two. This was on the night as well. I'm not just going to be an after-timer. I had Fowler winning the first two. Then I had Fitzgerald winning three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. Then a big round for Fowler in round nine. Then a 10-8 round for Fitzgerald in the 10th. So for me, it, it wasn't debatable. And, you know, as we went to find out, it went to the cards uh, after 10 rounds. And somehow, you know, one of the, one of the judges actually scored it for, for Fowler. I think they had it 95-94 for Fowler on one of the cards, which I find absolutely absurd given the knockdown as well. But the clear dominance, you know, in I say dominance here, it's, it's a bit of a heavy term. It, it was it was a competitive fight, but I think Fitzgerald was was a clear victor. I think that I think for me on the night, and uh, you know, like I say, I, I still think this. I think Fitzgerald nicked it with a knockdown, and uh, that's not saying Fowler was going to win if there was no knockdown. But I think that the that's what sealed it. But as we go on to the rematch, I think that the rematch in this one. Um, there's probably, with the exception of Joshua White, there's no more kind of change in circumstances uh, following that fight. I think that the, the the change in fortunes that these guys have had, um, in that the loser has become more successful of the two, is uh, is quite bizarre. Yeah, absolutely, and that's one thing that I was going to get onto. And the, the, the most bizarre thing about it, as you say, is the fact that the the, the the boxer that was defeated in Anti Fowler has surpassed Scott Fitzgerald, but it's not because of Scott Fitzgerald's performances inside the ring. Unfortunately, it's out of the ring demons. You know, he went on to to fight with Ted Cheeseman. He won the British title, and you know that was a hotly disputed uh, bout, as we mentioned earlier on the undercard to Ritson Davis Jr. in Newcastle, and Fitzgerald got the nod on the cards. And if we was to go back eighteen months or so, uh, you know, two years. At that point, the, the fight that was being moulded was Anthony Fowler to Cheeseman. They just couldn't get Scott Fitzgerald out of the way, so the idea was obviously for Fowler to defeat Scott Fitzgerald, Ted Cheeseman to beat Garcia for the European title, and then for that to be a huge fight on British shores. And as it was, Scott Fitzgerald turned that on its head, absolutely turned it on its head. He defeated both men, but as I say, he's out of the ring demons, his, his issues with the police and, you know, with family members and whatever else. It's absolutely frustrating. You know, I always wish Scott Fitzgerald the very best, you know, in terms of defeating these out-of-the-ring demons because in the ring he has all the ability to shine all the way up to a world stage. You know, I don't know if he wins a world title, but I think he's more than skilled enough to to, to be competitive at a world level given the right fights and given the right build-up. But he's just let himself go. And as you say, in the meantime, Anthony Fowler's gone on to defeat Brian Rose, uh, Harry Scarf, of course. And then he had the bizarre stoppage victory uh, against Tete in March of 2020 in Manchester. You know, a bizarre victory. But given that he's, he's bounced back with three wins, he would start the rematch as a heavy favourite for me. His in-ring activity, the the way he's looked so conclusive in the victories in the meantime, and, and Fitzgerald out of the ring demons coupled with Fowler's success inside the ring. For me, Anthony Fowler starts a huge, huge favourite. 
Yeah, I think I think I I think I agree. Like I say, Fowler has he, he's really shown that it, it was a blip, and you know he, he let Fitzgerald in his head. He's lost, and he's he's you know he put that picture up of him eating humble pie as a bit of a joke. But he has he, he's eaten it, eaten humble pie, and he's he's recovered, and he's actually like I say, he got ranked at middleweight off the back of the Brian Rose fight. He looked really impressive against Harry Scarf, and he looked a lot more measured than we've ever seen him before. And then, obviously, that was a weird one against Tete, but you've got to have those fights sometimes as a boxer. Um, but I'd like to absolutely deplore the actions of Scott Fitzgerald, if any of the rumours are true. Uh, obviously, we don't need to go into those here, but if they are true, that, that will end up in a court of law, and um, I'm sure we'll find out. But uh, Fitzgerald, the abuse that he's put his body through, clearly, with alcohol and whatever else he's been getting involved with, can't do him, can't do him well in a boxing ring. And, obviously, it's not... We're not here to we're here to talk boxing and not gossip about what Scott Fitzgerald's been up to in his personal life. But when you are gaining vast amounts of weight, when you are uh, drinking and eating, you will abuse your body and that will affect you in the ring. And I think that Scott Fitzgerald will be a diminished force in the ring. We saw it against Ted Cheeseman. The man that beat Anthony Fowler would have dealt with Ted Cheeseman in six rounds. That Ted Cheeseman in six rounds. So in terms of an actual anti Fowler versus Scott Fitzgerald rematch, what is your opinion on that bout if it's contested within the next 12 months, say? I think Fitzgerald's put himself through too much. I think I think that Fowler's continued to be active, to train. And obviously he's changed trainer. He's gone from one world-class trainer to another. He's gone from, uh, obviously, Coldwell to McGuigan. And then we don't know where Fitzgerald is in terms of training with anyone. And even... Even if he is training, it's with his dad. I don't. I don't think there's any way that even a world class coach could pull Fitzgerald out of this hole in the next twelve months to contest with an active and an active and kind of more seasoned anti Fowler. Yeah, absolutely. So that remains to be seen. So moving into the final fight of the four fight list, uh, a man that we've already mentioned, but I think this was such a great fight that it deserves its place on the list. Uh, Dylan White. And Joseph Parker, take us through that fight, Ewan. It was a brilliant fight when it first happened. It was a bit left field. Obviously, Parker had just lost his uh, WBO title to Anthony Joshua. But it was it, White was kind of still on the come up and he'd just beaten Lucas Brown. And it was kind of hastily thrown together. I, I seem to remember the fight being announced only a couple of days before the press conference took place. And it was it was an absolutely fantastic fight. And, you know, between two tough, tough heavyweight contenders. And I think that as both of them enter this limbo stage of not quite getting a heavyweight title, but being in and around the best heavyweights in the world, I think that it's uh, it's a rematch that could absolutely come off. Yeah, most definitely. I think when the fight was originally announced, I was really, really excited by it. I thought that Joseph Parker had shown enough in defeat to Anthony Joshua that he, he was more than capable of staying around, you know, the top echelons of, of the heavyweight division. That it was his only loss of his career at that point. And in my opinion, I thought Dylan White was, was going to take on Luis Ortiz at that point. I thought that was the fight that was going to be announced. And as you say, left field was the Joe Parker announcement. It was a fight that I didn't think Joseph Parker needed to take. I thought that, he could, you know, and it, you know, all credit to him for taking such a, a fight with Dylan White. But I thought it was a, a fight that he could have avoided in terms of trying to get another ranking belt, if you like, you know, an ABC trinket and, and, and position himself for another shot at the Joshua. 
but as it was, he, he went into the Dylan White fight. He tried jumping ahead of the queue, which it would have been had he defeated Dylan White. Uh, and it, it was... In terms of the bad blood that we man, we mentioned with the other fights, for me, this one felt a little bit more manufactured. They tried using uh, David Higgins and uh, the urn and almost following it on from the anti-Joshua fight as if this was like a, a bookend to, to the Joshua deal. And it, it did, it had, it had the feeling of a, a manufactured beef, if you like, a manufactured dislike to try and sell the fight, which it didn't need. It just could have been sold on the fact that it was too big lumps that were elite heavyweights putting it all in the line for nothing more than a, a great fight. David Higgins, though, is never one for, for just have, let's just have a fight. Is he, he's, uh, he's a salesman. He's a used car salesman, as, uh, as the old promoters like to say. He, he is absolutely, you know, he'd sell you anything. You know, if it, and if he wasn't selling you boxing, he'd be selling you something else. And uh, Higgins and Hearn both, as a double act, were quite uh, prevalent in the building of this one. And I think it, I think it led into what is actually just a brilliant heavyweight fight. And it's sometimes those heavyweight fights that don't really have anything on the line can really perform. And uh, this one absolutely did. Yeah, most definitely. I think, you know, it was the the main event of a great, great matchroom card in terms of heavyweight fights. I think there was the Dave Allen, uh, Nick Webb on the undercard. I think there was Derek Chisora and, and Carlos Takam. And, you know, it, when you're watching the card and you watch the entire card, you kind of watch an undercard bout and think that's fight of the night and that's fight of the night. And, but then with this card, it was each one was getting better than the one before. And this was, it really was the cherry on top of the ice and on top of the cake. It was a, a fantastic fight at the top of a fantastic bill. Uh, moving on to the fight. Uh, what, well, in terms of before we move into the fight, actually, it's something that I'd be really interested to get your opinion on. Who was your favourite moving into the fight in terms of, if you had a million pounds to put on a bet, who would you be backing? And don't be an after-time here, Ewan. I genuinely can't remember. I think I'd probably pick Dylan White, but only for only for being a fan of Dylan White. Um, it's a fifty. It was at the time. It's a fifty-fifty matchup. You could absolutely see reasons for both of them winning it. Obviously, Parker was hampered in his efforts against AJ by the referee, and he had a he had a tough night with AJ. But you know, he he held his own. Took him for twelve rounds for the first time, and. Dylan White was on the up and the up and the up and he'd just come off a spectacular stoppage of Lucas Brown and just an absolute demolition job. So it, it is a 50-50. Again, I'm not sure. I think my fan bias and being a British fight fan probably picked Dylan White, but it is. it was a true 50-50 at the time and I think that the fight proved that that 50-50 billing was absolutely accurate. Yeah, most definitely. I think for, for myself, as much as I'm a big Dylan White fan... I'll be honest, I'm not going to be an after-timer again. Like I say, it's, it's, it's a good term that I like to use, but I honestly couldn't see a way of Dylan White winning this fight. You know, I thought he's not going to be a younger, fresher Joseph Parker that's just gone 12 rounds with Anthony Joshua, over 12 rounds himself. And given that Joshua hardly put a dent in Parker and he's a much bigger puncher than Dylan White, that I couldn't see Dylan White knocking out Joseph Parker. So I was willing him to win and... You know, again, fan bias, I, I was supporting Dylan White. But in the back of my mind, I just couldn't see how he was going to achieve it. And as it was, you know, he went into the fight. He was lucky with the first knockdown in the second round that was scored a knockdown, but it was from a clash of heads and an elbow and everything else chucked in there, which really disorientated Josie Parker for a few rounds. You know, in those early, early rounds and moving into the middle of the fight, he just didn't seem like he was interested. You know, he was... 
really befuddled for the want of a better term. He he was really shook up from the fact that he'd been put down psychologically. He, he, he had to experience that for the first time. And even though it wasn't a clean shot, it wasn't, it shouldn't have been scored as a knockdown. It was, you know, that, 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 that happens in the boxing ring, you know, you have to get on with it, but it really seemed to have affected him and he never recovered until later on in the fight, by which point it was too late. Yeah, but those great heavyweight contests, a lot of the old heavyweight contests, if you look at them, they've all got a little bit of controversy, a little bit of drama, you know, uh, Angelo Dundee pulling the the cutting out of uh, out of the glove of uh, Ali after he's been knocked down by Cooper. The hokey pokey is always surrounded the heavyweights in in a way that it rarely has in other divisions. And you know, a clash of heads and an elbow is is uh, is not, not the heavyweight division is no stranger to those sort of knockdowns. And and the course of the fight will still be remembered as the course of the fight. And I think that that it almost adds character and fuel to a rematch because no doubt David Higgins will bring that up at a presser if they do it again. Yeah, most definitely. I think uh, a stand-up moment in the fight, the stand-up moment uh, amongst others, is that ninth round. That was a totally legitimate lockdown. It was, it was the left hook again. It, it completely took the legs from under Joseph Parker. Uh, it was a, it was a big knockdown. I didn't think he was going to get up from at the time. I thought you know Dylan White had outmanned him, outfought him, bullied him at times, and then he landed his his his, his again his honey shot that left hook. And he he flattened Joseph Parker, and yeah, he made it to his feet. But I thought at that point the right was on the wall. It's a testament to Joseph Parker's chin and his ability to recover, because the way he pulled it back to do what he did in the final round was uh, was absolutely incredible. You know, he really he really fought with the heart of a champion after that. Yeah, definitely. That that final round, you know, if you if you want to show anybody heavyweight boxing away from the world champions, you know, just show him that 12th round that, you know, Dylan White had put it all on the line. He'd, he'd emptied everything. All he had to do was survive that three minutes and lo and behold, you know, the tank empties it at such a, a rate that, you know, he had nothing left and, you know, he goes down, but I don't even think it was a, a heavy shot. It was, it was just that he was absolutely done, you know, and he crumpled to the floor and I, I remember getting up out of my seat. I was watching it at home and, I was in front of the TV screen and I just had my head in my hands like, he's blew this. He's absolutely blew this. And then he, he rises, he rises like a phoenix from the ashes and he just grabs hold of Parker. He hugs him like he's his mother and he, he won't let go. And he sees out the, the, the fight, knowing that if he sees out that round, that he'd, he'd put enough money in the bank in terms of rounds one to, to take it on the judges' scorecards. And that's that's how it... How it uh, Played out. He, he he took it on all three judges' scorecards, uh, if I remember correctly, and a fantastic win for Dylan White. Yeah, we talk about the old fifteen rounders. What if that had been a fifteen rounder? I think uh, I think Joseph Parker would have won that by knockout. I think that Joseph Parker is somebody that would absolutely have benefited in a, his entire career uh, for being a fifteen round fighter. But unfortunately, we live in the twelve round era, and uh, Dylan White was able to pull off one of his best victories today. Yeah, most definitely. I think that given, you know, one of the things that always surprises me is, is, is Joseph Parker's age. You know, I think he's he was 26 going into the, the anti-Joshua fight, 26 going into the Dylan White fight, of course, being in the same year. You know, and he's he's still very young in terms of heavyweight boxing, but still very competitive at the, the, the you know, the top level. You know, he's a former world champion, of course, and you, know, you mentioned there if it had gone on into 15 rounds, I think if it had gone into 30 seconds of a 13th round, he would have knocked him out. You know, he, Dylan White was absolutely done. And an interesting 
asterisk for me, if you like, Ewan, is take away that final minute of the 12th round where Dylan White completely gasses. Let's imagine that that doesn't take place and that he, he, he kind of moves around and sees it out and wins more convincingly on the scorecards. Do you think the demand for a rematch would be there without that final last-minute drama? Do you think the demand's still there for a rematch or do you, people just see it as like a, a Dylan White victory and the, there's no added drama, no added spice to call for a second fight? Because up until that point, it was quite one-sided. The heavyweight division is so thin, though, that I think that any any high-quality fight can be rematched. Look at uh, White, White Chisora. Do you know what I mean? The, the, these guys can pull out a rematch because there isn't a great depth of talent. You know, the f- top 20 guys are the top 20 guys, but below that, there's not much coming through. And I think that if, if you stay in and around the top level, like a Joseph Parker and Dylan White have proven they can do, you, the appetite for a rematch may well be there. I think that, like I say, if you have a closely contested fight at heavyweight, because of the uh, the lack of depth in the field, there can always be a, a call for a rematch. Yeah, most definitely. So moving into predictions for a potential Dylan White-Joseph Parker 2, how does that fight play out? I think Dylan White stops him. Uh, I think Joseph Parker, you know, for all his brilliant videos, that we're all such a massive fan of Joseph Parker, he's not had the calibre of opponents and he's not been active enough Dylan White's for a higher colour of opponents more often. And uh, Joseph Parker's not. He's for, what, Shondell Winters, who uh, none of us had ever heard of before until he got that fight. And uh, he's, he's and Dylan White's for, you know, the likes of Oscar Rivas. Uh, he's for, he's obviously going to fight Povetkin soon, hopefully. I think that he's uh, rematched his aura. I think that Dylan White is the logical favourite in that matchup. Yeah, I think. Now I'm gonna. Uh, I'm not gonna disagree with you as such. I'm, I'm completely on the fence here, and I'll tell you for why. Um, given Dylan White's activity since that fight, you know the Chisora rematch and such a, a brutal knockout victory, the Oscar Rivas, you know, take away the out of the ring issues, but that that was a a great victory. He got up off the canvas in that fight, and it, you know he beat a tough tough man in Oscar Rivas. Um, the Marius Vac performance you can't really take too much on but it was a victory if nothing else so the calibre of opponent that he's took on in the meantime far outweighs what Joseph Parker has done and I don't understand the reasoning behind Joseph Parker taking mediocre opponent after mediocre opponent after mediocre opponent you know one or two uh, or just the one in terms of rebuilding after a defeat fair enough but he could have had a fringe contender you know and obviously there was the fight which you saw that was postponed and that was a very frustrating thing to happen because that was a great fight you know if if, if Joseph Parker had got the fight with Chisora because I'd still think Chisora would have got the Usyk fight on the back of that uh, as it is the, the level of opponents for Parker sets him back but and it's a big but he will be the younger fresher man in there with Dylan White and I think he will be a very very live opponent I think the the conclusiveness in which he predicted your knockout is admirable Uh it's not one that I'd go along with. Uh, and in fact, I'd see, strangely enough, given how dramatic of a fight it was the first time, I see a mirror image. I, I do have Dylan White starting as as a favourite, as a very slight favourite. But I see all the dramatics of the first fight, multiple knockdowns, going 12 rounds, back and forth, and then it's down to the, the judges' scorecards. I 
put my neck on the line because we're trying to predict each fight as we're going along. And I do say Dylan White wins and he wins again in points. But I think both men hit the canvas, both men get up and both men stumble over the finish line in a absolutely mirror image of the first fight in terms of dramatics. That's what makes it interesting, isn't it? The, that's what makes there an appetite to have it is because not everyone agrees. Everybody sees it a different way. I think that that's, that's one of the things that could cause this to be a rematch that we might see in the next 12 months. Absolutely, absolutely. So, as always, you know, they're the four fights. We've, we've broke them down. We've looked at the first fights and why there's demand for a second fight and how we see that second fight going. Uh, I'd really, really implore all our listeners to go across to our social media and let us know what they think about the four fights. I will be putting out a few tweets to garner a bit of interest and garner a bit of opinion in terms of how those fights play out. So, as always, you know, we, we hope our, our, our listeners go over and, and check that out. But moving on in terms of the podcast, uh, Another segment that we've added is, of course, the fights to watch during lockdown. Myself, I take a more modern era classic and Ewan, as always, delves into the annals of boxing history. So, Ewan, the floor is yours. Give us your classic fight for this week. I'm going to go for... So, I've been trying to relate these to modern fights. Okay, so, obviously, I'm trying to pick ones that are a bit different. Everybody's seen the classics. But this one, for me, is a light heavyweight. Uh, Castillo Corrales, if you've ever seen that fight. Um, it's Archie Moore versus Yvonne Durrell. And it is an absolute, it's a classic. It's, it's tides turning boxing like nothing else. The, I'll give you a clue of how it starts. Archie Moore is on his bum three times in the first round. He gets knocked down three times in the first round. He's sk- skating all over the ring. And I won't tell you how it ends, but there's a, there's a, there was a fight in the old mongoose yet. I'll put it that way. It is an absolute classic. And, if you want knockdowns and drama and um, just sheer will, fighting on sheer will alone, uh, you can't go far wrong with uh, Archie Moore and Yvonne Durrell. Fantastic shout. And, you know, as always, we will post a link to that fight if we can find it on YouTube and that'll be available on the Twitter feed. Uh, for my modern fight that's one to watch, and there's a couple of reasons why I've gone for this fight. One that I've, I've read the man in question's autobiography these past couple of weeks during lockdown. And two, he happens to be my all-time favourite fighter. And of course, I'm alluding to Million Dollar Anthony Crawler. And the fact that I want people to go back and watch of his, and I've watched it multiple times in lockdown, is the first defence of his WBA lightweight title against Ismael Barroso. A fantastic fight. It's not too much of a secret how the fight plays out if you are a boxing fan, a British boxing fan, given that it was so recent back in 2016. But it's just, the sh- if, if, if people can go back and and watch the fight, and it's the sheer fear factor around Barroso at that time. You know, it didn't really kind of play out in terms of his career since then. You know, he's not the monster we all thought he was, but he destroyed Kevin Mitchell, a very good Kevin Mitchell, going in in the fight leading up to the anti-crawler fight. You know, this this was meant to have been Kevin Mitchell beating Barroso and setting up an all-British, all-English world title fight. That Barroso smashed those plans to bits, and yeah, he went in there with anti-crawler and Crawler fought a game plan set out by trainer Joe Gallagher. You know, a great game plan. Like I said, I don't want to give too much away, but go and check out Anti Crawler defending his WBA lightweight title against Ismael Barroso in 2016. Yeah, and check out the uh, the Karen Priestley photograph of the uh, end of that fight. It's it's it genuinely up there for me as a boxing photograph with Ali standing over Sunny List, and it's it's one of the best boxing photographs of recent times. Just stick that into Google. Yeah, most definitely. You know, again, I think we'll we'll post that alongside the link for the fight. But yeah, big shout out to Karen Priestley. That's maybe my all-time favorite fight photo 
given that it means so much being in, in my hometown of Manchester and, and being that it's Anthony Crawler being the hometown hero. But moving on, uh, finally, I want to touch on uh, as, 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 a, as a finishing touch to, to the podcast is our new Road Warriors fight series. You know, as always, at Simbox, we're trying to delve into new avenues of content and making sure we, we're supporting this with, you know, great names and great stories. And this is a new Road Warriors series that is going to be looking at the away fighters, the Road Warriors, the, the guys that go on the road in terms of being the B-side that go and fight your hyped-up prospects at short notice, at, at, at a multitude of weights. We, we've got some great names involved, I'll just, you know, to list them off. We've got uh, Pucci Van Poch involved, we've got Curtis Gagano, we've got Ryan Hibbert, Michael Horobin, Brett Fido and Ben Thomas. So that's going to be their first series of the Road Warriors and it really does epitomise just how important but how overlooked these guys are and if we can shed just an ounce of light onto these and give them the exposure they deserve then it's a job well done yeah the the road warriors the guys that put in the work on those smaller hall shows and undercards and fighting at six o'clock in a in a leisure center or village hall without them we don't get anti joshua fights without them we don't get tyson fury again in in las vegas you know in these enormous shows we don't get Floyd Mayweather's or Manny Pacquiao's, we don't get the level of boxing that we're accustomed to watching. These guys are the foundations of our sport. And I think shining a light into their careers and, and seeing, uh, getting a little bit more information off them is a, is a brilliant endeavour. And uh, I can't wait to see the final product. Yeah, absolutely. So look out for the first drop of that. That'll be coming this Tuesday, 6pm on Tuesday, and then every Tuesday thereafter. Um, and yeah, really looking forward to that. But just to finish with doing, you know, I just want to give a, a big thank you to everyone that joined us on our Insta Live this week. You know, we, we had Kieran Farrell, Fabio Wardley, Tom Farrell and Dave Caldwell. But then also on Thursday, I done a, a fan special, if you like. You know, I know you was involved for a little while and we just had an array of different boxing fans. You know, some of them I know personally, some of them I knew through social media, some of them I just invited on. And it was a really, really fascinating experience to speak to different people from across the boxing spectrum that wasn't directly involved in boxing. Great experience. Yeah, and a massive shout-out to uh, to Osh Williams, who jumped on at the end, and he's always really eloquent in the way he talks about boxing. Obviously, uh, a pro who'd, uh, who fought on the last show that I covered for Simbox in uh, in Bolton. But yeah, shout-out to Osh. Yeah, most definitely. You know, it was a great chat, as always, and Osh has become a really, really good uh, friend of Simbox, all at Simbox. And uh, yeah, big shout-out to Osh Williams and everybody else that got involved. Yeah, it was great. Absolutely. So, Ewan, that... that... Wraps up episode three of Let's Talk Boxing. It's been a fascinating chat as always. Uh, I wish you all the best. Take care and I'll catch up with you on next week's Cheers episode. Luke.